Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Today on the show, we have someone that to me is one of America's great emerging leaders, and she will cringe every time I say something like that. But Jill Castilla is not just someone that means a lot to the people who know her here locally. She is someone that has really begun to be someone as recognized on a national level for her ability to lead and lead effectively. She is someone that I can honestly say I've never met somebody with a more diverse background than Jill. She's the president, CEO, and vice chairman of Citizens Bank of Edmond, but she is also someone that can connect with almost anybody based upon life experience and her approach to life. Jill, welcome to the show. It's great to be on, Nathan. So you live in Edmond, Oklahoma, and for those who are not familiar with Edmond. It is a suburb, really, of, of Oklahoma City, and it has one of those, uh, you know, beautiful little uh, downtowns and the whole thing. But that downtown has been changed a lot because of the bank. And so, I want to start off by asking you a little bit about your idea of how a bank can make an impact in a community in some of the things that you've been able to do from the bank that have brought the community together. Can you share some of that? Sure. So um, we are really small bank, so just one location now. But at the time we made the decision to really invest in downtown Edmond, the bank had been on the same intersection where I am today uh, for 120 years. And we decided to, we wanted to be around for another 120 years. And the only way we could do that was to consolidate to one branch location. And we could choose wherever, we had six different branches, and we chose to come back to downtown Edmond to have this original location be the only location for this bank. But when we did the SWOT analysis and looked at different locations and what the strengths and weaknesses were, downtown, the location was a huge weakness. It was depressed. There were a lot of empty storefronts. It wasn't a destination of any sort. Um, it was mainly antique uh, malls that were lining the streets of downtown Edmond. So the demographics that are visiting here were older and it wasn't very, it wasn't necessarily the most hip scene in the Oklahoma City area. The rest of Edmond was thriving, but this is a low moderate income track and not just a lot of economic activity that was coming through downtown Edmond. So we said, okay, how do we flip this weakness into strength? And, and honestly, when I think about the innovation the bank has undertaken over the last several years, it's been that leveraging, like flipping a weakness into a strength or a threat into an opportunity. And so we asked the question, like, how do we make downtown Edmond a destination and then subsequently resurge, have a resurgence of the economic activity in downtown Edmond? So kind of on a whim, I had been inspired by a bank in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that started a street festival. And in here in downtown Oklahoma City, we had the largest street food truck festival in the nation happening called H and Eighth. And inspiration from those two different events, I thought, well, maybe we could use downtown Emma's little petri dish to do a food truck festival, kind of live music festival in downtown Edmond, the bank planning it. We only have 55 team members, us planning it. And it was gonna cost us about $7,000 to put it on. We couldn't get food trucks to come to downtown Edmond because 
They said Ebonites, Ebon is an affluent suburb of Oklahoma City, and they the food trucks all said that Ebonites prefer to sleep to eat indoors rather than to eat outdoors. And so we had to guarantee these five food trucks that they would be able to have 500 people show up for this food truck festival slash live concert. We ended up having 3,000 that first night selling out the food trucks within an hour. Raging success. That was almost eight years ago. And except for this past year, due to COVID, we started hosting these events eight times a year, uh, March through October, every third Saturday, three local bands, uh, three dozen food trucks and three dozen local shops and tents. And what we saw was just a very rapid turnaround in downtown Edmond. We've seen over $40 million in investments that developers are being committed to or have undertaken here in downtown Edmonds since Heard on Heard started. That's the name of our street festival. Every city council meeting that you go to where the developer is pitching an idea, they ask, why would you choose downtown Edmonds? And they always cite Heard on Heard as being the, and right now, and last time we threw Heard on Heard, we had 60,000 people show up to a bank street festival. It had a lot of doubters in the very beginning. The city was against it. A lot of the downtown merchants were against it. And even our board was apprehensive about what would we get from the street festival. And what I think we learned through that lesson is if you do good, you'll do well. And it's become a mantra inside of our bank that we didn't have really an end in mind other than we wanted to make downtown Edmond a destination, but we really didn't know if this produced any loans for us or deposits or really anything for the bank. We didn't really, we didn't promote any bank products or services at the event, but what happened and what came back to us was tenfold or a hundredfold anything we could have imagined if we would have set some type of goal for the bank to produce some type of income as a result of this event, we would have had a ceiling way too low, but because the goodness, I think, really amplified the results that the bank was able to get. It was just so much goodwill that we got from the community and customers and team members that wanted to be part of it. It was such an injection, not only in the economic revitalization of downtown Edmond, but also in accelerating the culture change within our bank. And now you know why I wanted Jill to be on this podcast. And Jill is someone that is, that the fact that she's on this podcast means a, a ton to me just because she is doing so many great things on a national level for her to spend some time with people from her, from her hometown means all the more. But the reason I love being around Jill, the reason I love being around leaders is because she saw a situation and then she saw an opportunity to change that situation. And I think my favorite thing about leaders is that they look at the situation and think, well, what if we did it differently? What, what if we thought differently about ourselves and, and about the situation that we're in? And so, Jill, thank you for sharing that as kind of the, the, the lead in because I think it em, embodies uh, what leaders can do of an inspiring a different way of thinking. So looking at leadership, which is at the heart of this show, when you graduated from high school and you're looking to the future and you look at where you are now, to kind of go back in time, at what point in life did you think that you might be the kind of person who could make life better as a leader? I think the first taste I got of that was when I went to basic training into the Army. 
I love the military because it doesn't matter where you come from. You're all put on this, you put on the same uniform. No one, you don't know whose family someone came from, whether that was good or bad or what type of home situation you had or education. I mean, you're really just kind of thrust all together. And usually the tallest and the loudest gets picked to be the leader initially. And that's what happened to me whenever I went to basic training. And then even subsequent after that, whether it was my advanced training, where it was more of a mixed men and women environment or to my unit. It's usually the very first is the tallest and the biggest and the loudest. And, and I'm small and usually it's back then, it was usually male too that would get picked. So I'm small, I'm pretty quiet, I'm introverted, but it was, you go through three different phases of basic training. And in the third phase, they pick a leader for every phase. And that third phase is whenever I got picked as the leader for that phase, I didn't really understand it at first. And when the drill sergeants talked to me about integrity and being positive and influencing others to do the right thing or make the right choice or doing something that they didn't want to do, that's how they pitched that leadership position to me that third phase. And I never seen myself in that way before. And so it was just a huge boost in my ambitions for myself and confidence. And I lean back on that little time period quite often, honestly, because you're, it doesn't matter how many people you're leading or what the circumstances, the problems are almost always the same. They're just scaled and, and they have different numbers versus people associated with them or vice versa. But that and um, someone giving me the confidence to know that I could lead and then to have such a diverse group to be a part of that you built camaraderie with and that you weren't doing it for any ego, but you really need to get the mission accomplished. And that was the first time um, I think I really saw myself as a leader. The Army has a mantra. It's not a formal one where it's mission first, people always. And that just has always stuck with me, too. So that was just really pivotal there at the end of my basic training. You know, I was taught that everybody has this box in the middle of their head that they store all the stories in about how they translate life. And that box has stories that can be taken out and, and put in along the way. And I love the idea that in that moment, you began processing this of maybe I could do this. When you think back about the people who helped you at that time or helped you in your life to become the person that you are today, who are some of the people that you would say had been key to helping you become the leader you are today? First would be a woman named Lurleen Mabry. She was the community banker in my hometown. She was the chairwoman of the board of directors at what is now Mabry Bank. And I would carry groceries out for Mrs. Mabry and her husband who was suffering from Alzheimer's. And every time I carried her groceries out, she would ask me if I had taken the ACT yet and where I was planning to go to college and Again, I mean, she saw something in me that I did not see for myself and that my family had never really encouraged me to do. And so without her, I wouldn't have considered education to be a very important part and that kind of growth mentality and seeking educational opportunities and the quest for knowledge. So that was huge. I wouldn't be anywhere near I am today without that. A woman named Paula Edwards, she's my first manager at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City when I went to work there. And Paula had this amazing uh, maternal quality where she would, I'm not a touching person, I don't like to touch, but she would just hold, like hug you at just the right time or 
place this very strategic like hand on your shoulder or your arm and be able to provide you really difficult feedback <laughs> but because she had this maternal aspect to her you you knew that she cared and so she was someone that I still am friends with today and still encourages me she also when I got my first manager role at the Federal Reserve Bank I wasn't ready for it and she told me, you're not ready for this, but you're going to do an outstanding job with it. And she became my peer when I got promoted into that level and was hard on me the entire time, did not change her expectations of me and a seasoned leader. Her expectations already went that I was competent in that job. And I so am grateful for that um, time. I also think of Esther George, who's the current president of the Kansas City Fed. And she was one of the first on the Federal Open Market Committee who didn't have her PhD in economics. And so she has her MBA and is, but grew up in the Federal Reserve, an incredibly bright woman. I got to report to her for a long period of time. And she's oftentimes the sole dissent in the Federal Open Market Committee going up against PhD economists making decisions about the economy and having the professional courage to stand up. And she was one that always talked about professional courage and how that's just you know, absolutely necessary if you're going to be successful as a leader, that you have to be able to stand up for what is right and what is fair. And then there's my previous CEO who in banking, there's not very many women in leadership. And in especially sometimes when you're around your peers, your competency can be questioned. And, and he transferred the competency and the level of professional respect that other bankers had for him he transferred that to me whenever he would meet with someone. He would say, this is Jill. She's the best banker I've ever worked with. And when he did that, it gave me, op it opened doors that would have been, they were closed. You could see the closed door and he was able to open it just by giving me some affirmation in front of my peers. And so there's just so many people that come to mind. I think about um, our governor, previous governor wasn't very popular. And I know we, were, we, were, we just talked about, we're not gonna talk about politics so much, but I think that you can gain even from leaders that you don't necessarily align with. But there was a moment that our legislature, state legislature was voting on a teacher raise. And I will never forget the image of her sitting in a balcony all by herself as she was looking to see whether they were going to pass this or not. And just that when I see leaders that are really alone and unpopular and they're still standing for what they believe. I mean, those moments I carry with me whenever I'm standing alone and feeling uncertain and that those are the moments that define you. So I don't think it always has to be someone really inspirational, but it can be people that do things that just last and linger with you. You have raised courageous kids. And then you've talked about courage yourself of the professional courage and things like that. And then being in the army, obviously courage is an important thing to be able to draw upon. What do you think the role of courage is in the life of a leader? You're getting at it there already, but what do you think that really means for, for someone? Because they look at the trappings of success now. They look at you now and they see someone who's highly professional in a great office at a great place and they want that part. But they don't want the part that you're describing a moment ago in who would, where you're alone. But the reality is leadership requires a lot of uh, aloneness, even just if in your, just in your thoughts. So can you talk about what it means to be courageous as a leader? 
I truly believe that you can only be courageous if you've had adversity in your life and adversity, whether that's professionally or personally, and, and certainly you touched on our kids and you know, they, they would cite having me as a mom, you know, presents a lot of opportunities to overcome adversity because, you know, I can be a pretty challenging, you know, to make them go overseas whenever they're in high school by themselves. And, but you really are only able to have courage when you have some touch points and knowing I overcame something. And so I'm so appreciative of those dark times growing up and, and some of the doors that were just shut in my face or the times that you really tripped up, you know, maybe experienced shame or made just massive mistakes or failures and that you were able to persevere through them because you look back and you're like, I overcame that. So this can't be that hard. And then there was, when in the military, there are general orders that you're given and these are the, the rules that you have to abide by. And it tells you, you know, basically that you'll take orders and obey them is basically, and you won't move your responsibilities to someone else unless you're properly relieved of your duties. But then at the end, they tell you that basically you need to do everything that you're asked to do unless you're asked to do something illegal. And I remember asking as a private, because there's a uniform code of military justice that they give you, how am I going to know if something is illegal? You know, this is like, it just will it just be if it's against this law? And they're like, no, if it's immoral, you have to tell this general as a private, I'm not going to do that. And if you don't do it, if you execute the order that's illegal or immoral, then you could go to jail too, or you could get accused of war crimes or whatever that may be. And so, you know, it is that professional courage is oftentimes that kind of unknown wrong that you just kind of in your gut know that something's wrong or you you raised well and you know the proper way of doing things are, that you have a responsibility, whether you're a private or a general, to say this is wrong and I'm standing up to it. And that was really a great trigger for me. But you also have to, it just that confidence, once you're gaining that confidence in your competency to have courage, you have to it's whether you feel okay performing without a net or not. It's a lot harder to do it early in your career when you don't have some net underneath you and you're really just going out and risking it all and maybe standing up to something that could make you lose your job. But just looking at my experiences in the past, even if that happens, standing up and exhibiting the courage and if something bad happens as a result of that, you have it to reference when you get later in your career of knowing I made it through that firing or I made it through that really trip up or that shame or whatever it may be. And it becomes something that really strengthens frequency going forward. So the courage and adversity just go hand in hand. It's not being reckless and because you're acknowledging the fear of what could happen by standing alone or by taking a risk. But the courage is knowing either you have the confidence or that you have the reference. I've done this before. I can do it again to be able to afford to really go through something really strongly. We had a bank turnaround here, which I referenced before, and I came out with no positional authority to make any changes, but there were things happening that were wrong. And so, although I think my title was like assistant treasurer, I reported to the board what I, with the wrongdoings that I saw, knowing that I would likely get fired by the leadership that was here. And so, and then doing, you know, taking that step forward, even though I knew I could get pushed back, um, has allowed me to do things later on in my career that would never have been possible if I hadn't taken that risk 10 years ago. I so appreciate that. And courage is a 
in essence, a muscle that has to be strengthened and strengthened. And I also love the fact that courage has proven to be contagious. And, and that one person acting that way gives other people the hope that they're not alone. So when you talk about courage or being able to face the unknown, I think about what happened in banking when COVID hit and then the economy is shut down, then you've got people relying on their banks to be able to help them get through with the PPP, with different things like that. And this is a moment that is really testing people's resolve about how to be a professional in a time of great uncertainty. Your bank, among a handful of other banks, really uh, stood up in that time and showed the character that you're referencing in a very real way. And, and I say that to you because I want you to know, uh, as an observer, it was amazing to me to see one of the clearest voices that you could find of hope for the future was coming from this small bank in Edmond, Oklahoma. And that message was very clear of this is what we're going to do. This is how we're communicating. I know that you are unbelievably uncomfortable being recognized. And then along with that, you're recognized by <laughs> all these groups because um, of what you do. But would you mind talking to some other leaders to describe what was going on and, and some of the connections that were made and some of the relationships that were born out of that? Because to me, that was one of your finest moments. Yeah, I think is really interesting how the crisis can really forge your vision and your your values and and this is certainly what happened with covid so we were always saying who we were and we were exercising who we were on a regular basis but it wasn't under fire and when you're presented with a crisis or even innovation honestly you're either a leader or you're a follower. There's no in-between. You're either leading or you're following. Whenever we saw, I was watching television and I saw that it was likely that China was underreporting the COVID cases, gathered our leadership team together and says, we, we need to be thinking about how this could impact our community and our customers right now in our team. So we immediately sent basically everyone home before COVID was on American shores and called all of our business customers and ended up sending an e a letter out to all of our consumer customers. But the conversations with the business customers are where we were able to get indications of how desperate the situation could become in the very short term. So that information and yeah, I really have focused the past 10, 11 years of being just ridiculously accessible. I get my cell phone out publicly. I respond to you know social media engagements. And, I, and I've always gotten so much more out of it than I have put into it. Just built a really amazing network of people. And Nathan, you're one of those that you're able to keep up with the lies of other people that you don't really interact with that much physically, but that you become friends and part of each other's lives, even though you're really going through more of a social media relationship. So all this kind of came to the head with the crisis that we um, knew we wanted to be here for a long term. We have really close relationships with our community. We have this great social media network that we've built over the last decade. And so um, once we knew that this is the problem, we were seeing the, the medical community rush to the aid of our country and in anticipation of the virus coming into America. And we just made it our um, mission that we were going to be the economic first responders, that 
we were going to do that for our community that whatever we needed to do to advocate for small businesses and our consumers and whatever relief that's our role there's not a voice out there we, we were trying to find the voice and we couldn't we couldn't find who was leading the charge and the Congress hadn't developed anything yet. It was still just really talking about where the threat of the virus. And so because we started speaking out a little bit more about it, this is what we see we need. We started getting pulled to the table to the highest levels of government, the highest levels of regulatory oversight of banks. And we got into conversations that honestly, we, we really didn't think that we had any business being at, but we had purchased every whiteboard in Oklahoma City metropolitan area had those throughout the bank and our chief banking officer and I were just saying, if we were in charge, what would we need? And it basically started coming up with like, what ended up being the Paycheck Protection Program with some changes associated with that and some other wild ideas. And we were presenting this to like Senate banking committees and at small biz and, and we're doing this while we were talking to our customers and just, it's amazing in a crisis. You can have all these different layers of a bureaucracy, but in the crisis, you need to be as close as to the problem as possible. And that's where we were. And so fortunate we had customers that were very astute and were sharing their their threats and opportunities with us and what they needed so that we could get, become the advocacy for them. So this is all happening on social media. Again, I mentioned that we have a strong social media network. And then Mark Cuban tweets out that he's looking for an FDIC insured bank to partner with to get stimulus checks to Americans as quickly as possible. There was, the government had just announced that there was going to be a two-week delay before checks could get to Americans. And so the entire financial technology community all over the world starts tweeting at Mark Cuban saying, you've got to partner with Jill Castilla at Business Bank of Edmond. Most of these people I've never met in my life, but they are on social media. One gentleman who I have met sent me a text message and says, Jill, you got to go on Twitter. It's blowing up. And sure enough, I had just hundreds of notifications tweeted at Mark Cuban, my cell phone number. He didn't tweet back, but then someone else said, hey, instead of giving him his cell phone number, here's his email address. Try his email. I emailed him. He calls me back in the middle of my board meeting. And basically we do this shark tank exchange, pitching different ideas on what we could do to get stimulus checks. And then the next day we had kind of ironed out what we would do. And then it got to the point where it was so much risk for the bank to execute this. It ended up being basically an overdraft program. We already were being really liberal with our customers and allowing them to overdraft their accounts as they waited for stimulus checks. But his, which I thought was brilliant as a leader, he wanted to partner with one bank so then he could tweet it out and challenge every other bank in the nation to do the same thing so he could reach millions of these these individuals that needed this money. It was so brilliant that he just needed that one little drop, that one little pebble so that it could just spread. And that's exactly what happened. He tweeted it out. We had over 400 banks contact us wanting information about the program. And we started seeing it go through the nation really quickly. And I thought that'd be the end of it with Mark Cuban, but instead Paycheck Protection Program got passed. Our staff was really focused on serving our customers and our community through that small business um, challenge. But what I was seeing throughout the nation on social media, that these urban core small businesses didn't have access to a banker. They didn't have the financial expertise to even know how to complete an application. And they were being shut out, especially from the large banks. And so I started playing matchmaker with literally a thousand small businesses, finding them a bank to do their paycheck protection loan and you know, not brokering a deal or anything like that, but just really just matching up and getting cell phone numbers out to small businesses around the nation.
Mark Cuban saw this and continued to like tweet out about us and and then that led to more engagements with providing small business resources. And we were both, um, I was, he was emailing me quite frequently with um, challenges that small businesses were having. And I would explain different parts of the application and such. And then we get the Paycheck Protection Program forgiveness application. And it's 11 pages long, highly complex. He shoots me an email and says, can you get together a few students to start a, um, a website to get a, a guided application? They'll produce a PDF at the end for these small businesses. And so I was able to find a partner through my FinTech relationships on social media. And they for free built a website. And then we launched pbp.bank in 10 days from that first email from Mark Cuban. He doesn't use any punctuation or capitalizations in his email. So it's like really sustained. I can't even like pare down like how targeted his email was to me and my response to him was just on it that's it and then we didn't talk for two days and then I pitched him back like this is everything we have we're ready to go I just need someone to pay for the hosting and he gave me his AWS password and we were off to go but the swiftness in making decisions the leveraging of a network that beginning of that but in being positioned so that you have the competency to be able to rise to the occasion whenever you're called to be the leader those first few weeks were just fast and furious i mean i thrive and love that crisis situation where you're getting to be kind of battlefield commander and and really like we've got to charge the hill what's the best way and how will we have least amount of casualties that's really what it was like those first few weeks and it just continued to just maintain this presence of leadership through it because we proved so much whenever no one else was stepping up to lead and it led to conversations with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and just in all kinds of leadership when it came to the Senate and the administration that will be a point of reference for us for probably decades to come. I don't know where those will go. It kind of goes back to do good and you'll do well. We weren't looking at this is what the financial benefits of doing PPP.bank, a free resource nationwide for really non-citizens customers. We have our own system that we paid for for our customers. We don't know what they'll provide, if anything, for us but it was the right thing to do. And I had just watched Frozen 2 at the beginning of the crisis. And the theme of that is to do the next right thing. And I think sometimes we can get really overwhelmed by a problem as a leader. And so this thought of just doing the next right thing, we don't have to do everything, but just try this next right thing. And it was just the perfect intersection for me to go through in that moment of crisis. And it's really what I carried with me as we started making decisions over those really critical months. Jill, I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for the decision you made to make a difference. The number of families that are impacted directly by your willingness to serve is profound. And, and I say this because when you listen to the first part of this podcast and she's saying, here we are in this downtown, there's not a lot of life, what do we do? And you move forward. You see a, a different reality. You think, well, if we could do this, this, and this, even if it's not something that people see yet, we'll forgive them <laughs> when they get it later and we'll all be together on this. And then to watch the exact same approach to this unprecedented crisis and to say, hey, this is something we could do something about. I, I love it because it's the heart of leadership, which is really about finding a need and filling the need. So in our last few minutes, I would just love to hear from you if you were talking to that emerging leader. And we talk about 
at, at Strata Leadership, we talk about the emerging leader is not so much just the age of the leader, but that moment when you realize that your identity is shifting away from being the person that is producing or doing to being the person that might be orchestrating the production, orchestrating the doing. And that identity shift is always a challenging time. So if you were talking to that emerging leader who is understanding that they might be called upon to serve other people through leadership, what would you say would be some of the challenges or perhaps some of the counsel you would give to them about leadership? One of my favorite sayings, and it's, it's something that also comes from the military, but I think it's a bit, it took me a long time to learn, lose it, learn this lesson because we, we think someone else will do something. You can become a complainer. You think, well, why doesn't that leader do this or my leader do this? And I love, and I get this echoed in my head, if not me, who, if not now, when? And so having that in your head to know that you can do something about a, a challenge, a situation, an opportunity, whether it's having to go through a formal process of making a recommendation or just taking action. I also think the mentality of that no one else is coming. Like there's no one else coming. Like if, you're, if, if we were waiting for someone to react to COVID, we would be waiting a while and then we would be complaining about whatever legislation, like partake on what, lean into the opportunities to influence because no one else is coming, especially if you're like an industry like mine that has pretty bleak prospects on how long it will endure. There is no one to turn to that says, this is what banking is going to look like in 10 years. So I think it's important as a leader to have the audacity to think that you can forge the path that everyone else is going to follow and that you can be the one setting the vision out there. I also would, um, I, sometimes you can make excuses that you don't have the resources to make change. And so I would encourage everyone to be like MacGyver. And I, you know, we're more of a Generation X where we grew up with MacGyver. I think there's a remake now. But that, that sometimes the best innovation and the best ideas come when you have scarcity. The scarcity can be as much of a resource as $40 million. And honestly, it's the differentiator with us in that if you give me a paper clip and rubber band and a stick of gum, I can do a lot more with that than if someone gives me a really big budget and 50 engineers. So you know, don't use scarcity as an opportunity to really be innovative and go forward rather than complaining about budget or resources or staffing. If you have that kind of shift in mentality, you will find that there is freeing of barriers, that there's just no barriers. I, even being a woman in a male-dominated industry, once I started seeing that as being an asset rather than something that held me back, my whole outlook on the industry really changed that I can not only do this for me and I, I can stand out, but I can pave a way for there to be more women after me and that, that you can have a generational impact. I also, and I love the term audacity, so I'm using it twice, but then thinking about that you could have a generational impact on whatever business that you're in or whatever industry that you're in or whatever community that you're in. And it doesn't require you to be in a position of even a formal leadership to be the leader, that all you have to do is want to make change and then put your lean into the passion of that make change. 
passion is another word I would say is do something that brings that out of you that you just can't help but want to advocate for the small businesses. I saw an Instagram post the other day that was like, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And then it crossed out, you'll never work a day in your life. And it was like, um, you'll take everything personally. You'll have no boundaries for what you do and you'll, you'll work nonstop. And that's, you, you want to do something where you really can lean into it, where it does consume you, where you will break down barriers to be able to make something just incredibly awesome for everyone around you. And that's really where leadership shines. Leadership also doesn't have to be leading other people to something. It can really be leading the way from an innovation standpoint or how you address a crisis. The people part is uh, the most difficult part. And then also the most rewarding part But you can learn so much by just being a situational leader and figuring out how to overcome obstacles. And then you can really be in a great position to lead other people to do the same. Jill, thank you so much for being on the show today. I hope you know that your friends and and the people who are doing life around you, that we're so proud of you and so uh, thankful that people on a larger scale see within you what we have seen within you of your determination, your audacity, your humility have positioned you to do something that has never been done before. And it's interesting because you talk about making a difference for generations. It's already done. You've already done that. And now we get to see what comes of that uh, all the more. And so thank you for what you do. Thank you for why you do it. And I will say this is not a uh, advertisement for your bank at all, but I will say that having watched the interaction that you had with your customers and, and people through that really challenging time in COVID, our family was in the process of purchasing a home at that time. And I said to my wife, I, I said, I think we need to go with, with Jill. I think what they're doing there says everything you want to know about what they think about the community. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate your leadership, appreciate what you do. As we wrap up, the idea of no one else is coming. I was in a uh, program last week and we had people from Alaska who were a part of the program. And I always think back to that concept of when I would go to work in Alaska that idea of uh, no one else is coming uh, for me came from that of uh, I would watch people living in Alaska and if something breaks in your home and it's the middle of winter, you better figure it out because there's nobody else coming. And that phrase has meant a lot because the idea is as a leader, you set the pace, you set the tone, you are responsible. Whether you want to be or not, that's the role of a leader. And so today, if you're listening to the Strata Leadership Show, I hope that you are hearing those words, that there is a way, and that even if that way is not obvious, that if you will make a step forward, if you'll be courageous, your act of courage can inspire other people to be courageous too. Thank you, Jill, for being a part of the show. We look forward to having all of you back for our next Strata Leadership Show day can be a great day, but you have to set the pace. Have a great day.